everybody. Welcome to School Psych Podcast. We're super happy to be back. We've spent a little bit of time at NIASP in New York, and that was way fun, um, and did a presentation in real life, which was super scary uh, because we actually saw people watching us. Um, but it was a lot of fun, and we met a lot of cool people and um, talked about social media. So um, that was that was good stuff. But real excited tonight. Um, when I approached our guest at NASP, um, I was super nervous and because I, I, you know, check out his blog and whatnot. I'm familiar with, with some of his work and uh, approached him and he knew about School Psych Podcast. And I was like, oh, just, <laughs> so that was really thrilling for me, especially because I often go up to people and like, so I run this podcast and they are like, what are you talking about? And they kind of give me a silly look and wonder if I'm a crazy person. So it was really a thrill for me to, to um, that he recognized the name of School Psych Podcast. So I'm really happy, but my name is Rachel. I'm a school psychologist working in Maryland and I'm gonna pass it over to Rebecca who's gonna talk a little bit about how to participate tonight. Rebecca? Hello, everybody. I'm Rebecca. I'm a school psychologist working in Connecticut. And I was really also thrilled to meet so many of you at NIASP this past um, last week and this weekend. And um, know that many of you listen to us not live, but after the fact on iTunes and Podbean and wherever you get your um, podcast. So I'm going to keep that in mind all of tonight and um, try to uh, make sure that I am encouraging your commenting um, later on as well. But if you are watching us live on YouTube, you can sign into your Google account and you'll see a chat box right next to your video. And we welcome your comments, thoughts, exclamations, or questions, whatever you got for us. We're really happy that you're here and able to watch live as well. Um, and then also, I'll be looking for comments and questions on our Facebook pages, School Psych, Your School Psychologist, or on the School Psych podcast page, or on Twitter, all using the hashtag Psyched Podcast. I'll be looking out for notifications, comments there. So please feel free, however you're listening and tuning in, to comment, and um, we'll share questions with our wonderful guest. And now I'll pass it on to Eric, who's going to introduce himself and our guest. Thank you, Rebecca. Hi, everyone. I'm Eric, and I am a school psychologist, also in Connecticut. And we're excited to have Dr. Joel Schneider with us this evening. Um, before I introduce him, I want to remind people to please like and share and subscribe to us on iTunes, YouTube, etc. Um, sometimes that feedback and data uh, helps us improve what we're doing. You know, give us a rating, let us know what you like, what you don't like. Uh, all of that feedback is beneficial to us as we continue the podcast. So. Uh, I had the privilege of seeing Dr. Schneider in Chicago at um, NASP with uh, Dr. McGrew, who we've also had on as a guest. So it's exciting to have him here this evening. And I'll tell you just a little bit about him. Dr. Uh, Dr. Schneider grew up in Orange County, California. He holds a BS in psychology from the University of California, Berkeley. His MS and PhD are in clinical psychology from Texas A&M University and his clinical internship was at the Dutchess County Department of Mental Hygiene. From 2002 to 2017, he was lecturer, then assistant professor, associate professor, and then professor of psychology at Illinois State University. And from 2017 to the present, associate professor, professor of psychological studies and education counseling psychology at Temple University. And we just learned also that his wife is uh, also uh, Renee Tobin, also professor at, of studies in education, counseling, and psychology at Temple as well. So that's 
That's exciting to hear. Uh, Dr. Schneider is going to speak to us this evening or speak with us this evening on writing assessment reports that people will read, understand, and remember. And as school psychologists and I think also clinicians who might be listening, I think we can all say that this is uh, an area that's interesting and important to us. So um, Dr. Snyder, welcome. And um, we welcome your thoughts and ideas. Thank you so much for having me. I, I love talking with people about this topic and um, I, I like sharing my ideas and I also like learning what other thoughtful people have to say about it. And I regularly incorporate new things that I learn in these conversations into presentations. Thank you. Um, I have uh, prepared some slides and um, here they go. Yeah. Um, so let's see here. I have a number of goals. I, I know that any kind of uh, presentation like this involves some opinions. My opinions are strong. I understand that they are my opinions and your opinions may differ. And um, I love diversity in all its forms, including diversity of opinion. So if you disagree, that's great. Uh, I would love to understand why. Um, I, I understand that some of my recommendations about report writing uh, run counter to your current situation, like your, your job might not allow you to do it the way that I recommend. And I understand that. I've, I've been in that kind of situation before. Um, we, we do the best that we can and we advocate for change whenever whenever that's possible. Um, I want to give a plug for this idea that uh, assessment is not the right tool for every problem. Um, in fact, most of the time, most of the routine problems, I believe that uh, a rather minimal assessment without an assessment report is the right way to go. Uh, I think that doing a full-on assessment uh, for most routine problems is like, um, pulling in an excavator, a gigantic machine to do routine weeding. It's, it's just a, a, not the right tool for the job. Um, and uh, conserving the public's resources by uh, withholding assessment until it's uh, needed uh, is a, a vital component of any job in which you're, you're given uh, the public's trust. And so uh, I, personally welcome the, the changes that have been happening in this, the, the field of school psychology, where uh, this idea of not ass assessing, uh, doing a full, you know, whisk for everything is, is I think, is a great idea. Um, my, my position is evolving on, on, on this topic. Right now, I'm calling my position last resortism, is that uh, you, you do a big assessment when, um, when all of the other um, interventions have, have uh, ceased to work and the, 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 uh, the team is getting frustrated and no one knows what else to do. Uh, when not knowing what's going on is not working, then uh, try knowing for a change. And so that's, that's where I am on assessment. But let's say you've decided that you do want to do an assessment and you want to do a thorough assessment. And that's, that's the topic uh, for today, those, those hard cases. Um, what I'm going to recommend, I, I understand that clear, important, legitimate exceptions can be found for every statement I'm going to make, uh, including this one. So uh, if you uh, say, you know, that idea didn't seem quite right to me or something like that, uh, if you were to voice that, 
by email or in the chats, I'm I'm likely to agree with you that uh, it's a complex world and um, it's it's very hard to say something that's true and useful uh, in every situation for every person for all times in history. But, but uh, I hope that uh, when I say things that uh, I, I'm relying on you to apply the appropriate scope to it. Uh, my, my true confession is that I'm not a school psychologist. I was trained in clinical psychology, uh, but uh, the idea of empathy is doesn't belong to any branch of, of the helping professions. Empathy, it's hard to underestimate its importance. And I think that uh, the assessment process begins and ends with, with empathy. It is the psychologist's superpower. It's uh, uh, rather easy to explain. It's difficult to do uh, uh, really well. Uh, we owe a great debt to Carl Rogers, who uh, explained how empathy is one of the core ingredients of any kind of helping enterprise. Um, he says, um, empathy means entering the private perceptual world of the other, being sensitive moment by moment to the changing felt meanings which flow in this other person. It means sensing the meaning of which he or she is scarcely aware. I try to root any any, any helping um, activity I do in, in empathy first. And uh, when I stray for, from that is usually where the trouble begins. Um, in terms of, of psychotherapy outcome, uh, if you do meta-analyses and whatnot, uh, you can see that of the, the common factors, empathy is, is a a really big deal in terms of effect sizes. Uh, anyone who's helping who displays empathy has a much, much better chance of actually being helpful. Applying empathy to uh, the assessment process is not a new idea. Um, uh, people have been talking about this. I started you know, reading uh, advice articles and books about how to do a good assessment. And uh, right from the beginning and the, the, the first few articles that were ever written on the topic, uh, empathy, although it wasn't called that, was, was definitely included. Uh, a formalized treatment of this, this topic um, can be found in, in some of the great works of, uh, of the assessment literature. Some of my favorites and the ones that influenced me the most would be Constant Fish, Constance Fisher in her book, Collaborative Assessment. Um, the, the idea that we are, that no one person owns the whole truth and that we can collaboratively explore something with another person. Uh, when you're dealing with children, of course, this involves uh, the entire um, ecosystem of, of, of the child's world and um, that that you collaboratively define what are the assessment goals, uh, what are the meanings of the, of the data with the parents, with the teacher, with the child, and with anyone else who's involved. A more thorough and um, structured way of, of incorporating empathy into the assessment pro uh, process comes from Stephen Finn and his his approach uh, called therapeutic assessment with the capital T and capital A. Um, he also talks about therapeutic assessment lowercase, which is anyone who's attempting to make the process of assessment therapeutic. 
I don't exactly follow uh, therapeutic assessment with a capital T and capital A. Um, it's a highly structured, manualized way of, of making assessment therapeutic in and of itself. But the goal of making the assessment therapeutic all the way through works. And it's quite different from the typical assessment where uh, you say, okay, I'm, I'm going to you know, find out what's going on. And then the very end, I'm going to reveal the big reveal in my report and hope that that makes a difference. Um, uh, I, I, you know, research is evolving on this question all the time. The preliminary answer is that if you wait for it to be helpful to the very end, it's not likely to be very helpful. But anytime someone has tried in a systematic way to make the whole process therapeutic all the way through, they tend to succeed. So for example, there was a recent meta-analysis, uh, recent meaning 10 years ago, um, uh, of, of uh, various attempts to make the psychological assessment process therapeutic in and of itself. And uh, the effect sizes vary because the approaches here in the meta-analysis varied quite a lot. Uh, but when when people try to make the the assessment process therapeutic, they tend to succeed. Now, this meta-analysis does not mean that all assessments are therapeutic or all assessments are useful. Many of them are essentially a waste of time and uh, and and money. Uh, that uh, we're, we're seeing with ever greater clarity that certain kinds of assessments just uh, are not particularly helpful. But there is a way to make it helpful, and so my my goal here is not to defend assessment practices as they are, but to make assessment practices defensible. And I think that this is one major area in which um, the helping professions can improve, that they, if they're going to do the assessment, that they go in with the, attention, the intention that I want it to be helpful all the way through. Um, in very, very broad strokes, therapeutic assessment starts with uh, the idea of building and maintaining and working alliance, easier said than done, uh, particularly in the cases uh, that come before you that merit an assessment, that often we're dealing with people who've burned their bridges everywhere they've gone, and, and these are folks for whom uh, building and working alliance does not come naturally. And this is why they need um, seasoned, excellent, kind, caring, conscientious helpers. Um, the while building that working alliance, that you collaboratively define assessment goals, that you work together with the person. If all you do is you show them a BASC results and say, well, it looks like your um, depression is high or something like that, or the child's depression is high, you're telling the person what they already knew. They told you that on the BASC. Um, that instead what, what we're working for, what working toward is uh, helping a person understand um, things that they don't already know. And so one of the, the basic questions of this approach is, at the end of this process, what would you like to know that you don't know already? And what would be useful for you to know? Now, not everyone has a ready-made answer for that, and so you work collaboratively to, to find something that they would like to know and at the end of it, and then you can see if you can put together an assessment that will work towards an answer. And uh, along the way, you may discover uh, quite a bit of serendipity of new questions that didn't occur to you that first time and, uh, that you met, and so you can update those list of questions as you go. 
instead of doing a big reveal at the very end, the idea is that you share assessment results as you go. And this is something controversial, but uh, that you um, work with a person to explore what these results mean as you go and you collaboratively verify with all the parties involved uh, what, what these results mean and, and explore their meanings. And this makes it so that very little in the report comes as a surprise. And it makes a person um, feel seen and heard and understood in a way that we rarely are. And this in and of itself can be therapeutic. It also has the benefit that when you do the report that they're already on board because they've collaboratively agreed to your, your, um, your interpretation already and that they've, not your interpretation, the collaborative interpretation that you've co-developed. And with children, of course, there's some wrinkles uh, in, in, in this. You're collaboratively developing a, an interpretation with teachers and with, with parents and, and often with the child. Um, stories. I think that uh, narrative is a big deal in assessment. And the assessment report should have a narrative quality. And that doesn't mean that we're writing great works of literature like John Steinbeck did, uh, but I, I like what he has to say about it. He says, we are lonesome animals. We spend all our life trying to be less lonesome. And one of our ancient methods is to tell a story, begging the listener to say and to feel, yes, that's the way it is. Or at least that's the way I felt it. I feel it. You're not as alone as you thought. So the assessment process, it begins with listening to their narratives. And we do an interview. I have to say, um, I, I love the tests and the tools that we have. But if I had to choose between a great interview and all the other tools, I'll take the interview every time. Uh, I'm glad I don't have to make that choice. But that is, that is I think, uh, our most important tool. It's the point of contact, and it's where uh, I think the, the meanings that develop that have the greatest certainty, at least for me. During this interview, we empathize. Uh, we're collaboratively uh, sharing back our interpretation of whatever ever it is that they say, continually checking to make sure that uh, we understand and continually communicating our understanding. And uh, graduate students often ask me, well, what if you're wrong? And uh, this is, I, I love that question because um, when, when you're wrong, when you communicate your empathy, it means that they have an opportunity to update your wrongness. If you don't venture any interpretation, then you'll just persist in your wrongness and you won't know. While we're listening, we're still investigating. There's a, it's a guided kind of listening. It's a collaborative kind of listening. And in the end, we're, we're clarifying as we go. At some point, there's an agreement that the listening has um, diminishing returns, that, that uh, a clarity has emerged. And then we go to a, a different phase of the assessment, which is learning from new data outside of an interview. And this includes um, you know, reviewing records, it does direct observations and testing. So there's some data gathering uh, and there's some math. Um, I happen to love math. 
I, I love the numbers. I love the statistics. I'm weird like that. I would bathe in numbers if I could. However, uh, once I've interpreted the data, I tend to put the math aside. It's not the best way to communicate with other people. We communicate with narrative. And so I learn from the math, I thank the math, and then I let it go. There's a process by which we, we take the narrative that we learned in the beginning, we update it with new data, and then we transform it back into a narrative, a narrative that we can retell in a way that gives a person new understanding of, of where they are. Um, this retelling can induce empathy in, in the child. It can, in, and more importantly, induce empathy in the adults in their life that they can um, see the child with new eyes. Often we take a toxic narrative, this is a lazy kid, this is pain and in, in, in the whatever. Um, this is a kid who's not trying enough, not motivated, what have you. This is a kid who hurts other people. This is a kid who we, we, we've had a tough time reaching. And you can retell that kid's story in a way that detoxif detoxifies it. Uh, not with rose-colored glasses. We face facts squarely that sometimes there are difficult people in the world and there are even difficult children. However, we can always tell the story in a way that is true and helpful. Um, that we can explain the problems in a way that puts things in a more hopeful light and restore hope and inspire change. And in this way, we've got kind of a narrative sandwich in which narratives are the beginning and the ending of assessment. I love so much of what you're talking about. And, and we've got some comments too, that especially people really like when you said, you know, what would you like to know that you don't know already. And I think that that's, that's super important because sometimes, yeah, I feel like I'm, I'm just reporting back that yes, the uh, things that they already know. And um, so I think, I think that's really important. When you're talking about the, the share as you go, I'm wondering, and maybe you'll get into this, I'm wondering how that looks just because I find that as you know, I get all my data and then I'm sitting down and writing kind of pieces of my report here and there when I have a, a chance. And I feel like I'm interpreting it as I'm going. And by the time I get finished with my report, then I'm like, okay, now, now I kind of see how this fits together. I feel like if I shared as I went, it would be, I would be reversing and saying, oh no, I take that back and whatnot. So, so I don't know. Um, I, maybe you'll yeah. talk a little bit more. <laughs> sure. So obviously if you're presenting your interpretations as final pronouncements, that's going to backfire because nothing's final. And so uh, it might be something like, well, on this uh, uh, um, on this self-report of personality, like Basque or something like that, um, you said um, that you know uh, you have a lot of anxiety. Uh, can you tell me more about that? Um, it, and as, as you you check in with with a person, you you develop a deeper understanding of whatever it is that uh, the person told you on the questionnaire that you're you're continually deepening the, the conversation if it's something like academic uh, results um, that are unexpected that you didn't already know about um, you can say you know one of the things that was really um, 
that, that surprised me was was uh, how difficult it was for you to to write this essay that took a really long time, and it was something that you um, it it looked like you were um, really struggling to do it. Like each letter was 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 hard. Is that true? Is is this normally how it is? Um, are there any other times when it's like that? Oh, what other things? You know, so I'm I'm continually just asking questions like, uh, what happened there? Is is this like what happens outside of of this room? Is there anything else in your life that's like that? Did that answer your question? For sure. Yes. Thank you. Okay. All right. Um, yeah. Th of course, there are some uh, some things that you do in the final report writing that you have you know, late breaking epiphanies. Uh, and I, I, I tend to uh, write those into the report, but I, I don't usually actually sign my report until I've gone over it with, with uh, uh, the, the major parties in the assessment and, and say, okay, here's, here's my rough draft, let's go over it. And then um, uh, make any corrections that I need to. Um, any other questions? Well, I we just have a lot of people uh, commenting, uh, kind of agreeing with your points, and we have a nice little sidebar going next to the video. <laughs> nice. Okay. Um, I'll, my my retelling of this that narrative sandwich is that we. Uh, start with you know the best available data, and this is my my artistic rendering of geeky math. Um, and then uh, we we look at a person's development and their learning history. Uh, we incorporate whatever is going on in the current context, and then there's this dynamic tension between these more narrative kinds of data and the harder like test scores. Um, we don't. I, I try not to privilege either side of this equation that we're uh, that I'm continually trying to to integrate and see how they're both true in some sense, um, and uh, often they they agree and sometimes they don't. And when they don't, they're not inconsistent with each other. They're inconsistent with my simplistic interpretation. So I'm I'm trying to find some some way in which it all fits together and is all true. Um, Getting to the specifics of writing a report, uh, as opposed to the process of assessment, um, I loved this quote from Constance Fisher. Um, she wrote back in the 80s, finally, it helps to remember that reports are for the readers, and that's her emphasis, not for the author. Reports are for communicating key findings along with illustrative support to readers. The report is not a repository of everything the assessor did and noticed, a place for the assessor to wander around and finally discover the outcome, or a laboratory report of esoteric scientific indicators, or an arena for the assessor to demonstrate personal clinical prowess, superiority of insights, technological wizardry, and so on, or a place to test the elasticity and comprehensiveness of the assessor's theory, or the occasion to demonstrate the author's literary potential. To repeat, reports are for readers. That was a major re revelation that uh, often we write reports with com many competing goals and uh, often uh, making the report a, a, a communicative document to the readers is 
rather low on the on the hierarchy. Um, that often what we're trying to do is is uh, document some finding and avoid a lawsuit and you know uh, try to avoid being called out as wrong or or whatnot. Uh, keeping this goal firmly in mind is a big deal, and it makes the reports so so much better, and it makes the job far more enjoyable. Um, the idea is that we as helpers, uh, I think as, as, a, as a group, we're pretty good at demonstrating empathy face-to-face. -face. What we're often not trained to do is to demonstrate that empathy in our writing and in our reports. And so uh, what I'm proposing is that um, what we're trying to do with a good report is uh, take our empathy for the child and inspire the reader's empathy for the child to give the, the, the reader a, a new vision of, of the child. And one of the best ways to do this, I think, is to have empathy for the reader. And by that, I don't mean, oh, boy, dear reader, you've had a tough day or something like that. That's not what I'm talking about. It's the kind of empathy of imagining what is it like for a reader to read my report if the reader doesn't know what I know. And this act of, act of empathy is crucial for um, writing a report that can be transformative. I think that the best way to do this is to communicate with stories. I, um, I don't know how many times I've heard of you know Erickson's stages or. Um, uh, Maslow's hierarchy of, hierarchy of needs, any kind of list kind of theory. I, I, I have very diff, I, I have difficult time remembering all of them. And yet there are episodes of the Brady Bunch and Three's Company from the 70s that I remember still, and I haven't seen them since I was a kid. Uh, there's something about a story that sticks in the head. And so I think that if you think of the assessment report as a kind of narrative that you're telling a story, it has a much greater chance of sticking in the head of the reader. So uh, my goal is to tell the story of the person being assessed and not the story of the assessment of the person. That in this process, you can help the world, you can help a person understand the world a little better and you can help the world understand a person. Um, so I, uh, my goal is that I write about people and I resist the temptation to write about tests. I'll give an example of, of two different approaches to writing a, an assessment report. The, the first one is one that was not that different from the kinds of reports I wrote not that long ago, maybe a decade or two. Um, so uh, it might go something like this. On a test in which Judy had to repeat words and segment them into individual phonemes, Judy earned a standard score of 78, which is in the borderline range. Only 7% of children performed at Judy's level or lower on this test. This test is a good predictor of the ability to read single words isolated from contextual cues. On a test that measures this ability, Judy scored an 83, which is in the 13th percentile. It's considered to be in the low average range. Reading single words is necessary to understand sentences and paragraphs. On a test that requires the evaluee to read a paragraph and then answer questions that test the evaluee's understanding of the text, Judy scored an 84, which is in the 14th percentile and in the low average range. An 84 in reading comprehension is 24 points lower than her full scale of IQ, 
full scale IQ of 110, 75th percentile, high average range. This is significant at the 0.01 level and only 3% of children in Judy's age range have a 24 point discrepancy or larger between reading comprehension and full scale IQ. Thus, Judy meets criteria for reading disorder. More specifically, Judy appears to have phonological dyslexia. Phonological dyslexia refers to difficulties in reading single words because of the inability to hear individual phonemes distinctly. This difficulty in decoding single words makes reading narrative text difficult because the reading process is slow and error prone. Intensive remediation and phonics skills followed by reading fluency training is recommended. Explanation one. This is the kind of explanation I'm aiming for uh, these days. Explanation two. For most 12-year-olds as, as bright as Judy is, reading is a skill that is so well-developed and automatic that it becomes a pleasure. For Judy, however, reading is a chore. It takes sustained mental effort for her to read each word one by one. It then requires further concentration for her to go back and figure out what these individual words mean when they're strung together in complete sentences, paragraphs, and stories. It is a slow, laborious process that is often unpleasant for Judy. Why did Judy, a bright and delightfully creative girl, fail to learn to read fluently? This simple question has many answers that are not so simple. The problem that most likely first caused Judy to fall behind her peers is that she does not hear speech sounds as clearly as most people do. It's as if she needs glasses for her ears. The sounds are blurry. For example, although she can hear the whole word cat perfectly well, she might not recognize as easily as most children do that the word consists of three distinct sounds, k, a, and t. And for this reason, she has to work harder to remember that these three sounds correspond to three separate letters. K is C and a is A and t is T. With simple words like cat, Judy's natural ability is more than sufficient to help her remember what the letters mean. However, learning to recognize and remember larger words, uncommonly used words, or words with irregular spellings is much more difficult for Judy than it is for most children. Many children with the same difficulty in hearing speech sounds distinctly eventually learn to work around the problem and come to read reasonably well. However, Judy is a perceptive and sensitive girl. And these traits are typically helpful, but unfortunately, they allowed her to be acutely aware from very early on that she did not read as well as her classmates. She clearly remembers that her friends and classmates giggled when she made reading errors that were to them inexplicable. For example, for a while, she earned the nickname, the nickname Tornado Girl when she was reading aloud in class and misread Volcano as Tornado. She came to dread reading aloud in class and felt growing levels of shame whenever she read silently to herself. She began to avoid reading at all costs. She did not read for pleasure, even when the texts were easy enough for her to read because she felt, in her words, dumb, dumb, and dumb. Over the next several years, she fell further behind her peers. By avoiding reading, she'd never developed the smooth automatic reading skills that are necessary to make reading a pleasurable and self-sustaining activity. Although Judy's abilities to hear speech sounds distinctly is still low compared to her 12-year-old peers, this weakness is not what is holding her back now. Indeed, her current ability to hear speech sounds distinctly is actually better than that of average six and seven-year-olds, most of whom learn 
to read without difficulty. With extra help, Judy can learn to decode words phonetically. However, in order for her to develop her reading fluency and her reading comprehension skills to the level that she's capable, she will need to engage in sustained reading practice, uh, sustained practice reading texts that are both interesting for Judy and are at the correct level of difficulty. She is likely to be willing to read only if she has helped to manage the sense of shame she feels when she attempts to read a book. And this may require the collaboration of a reading specialist and a behavior specialist with expertise in the cognitive behavioral treatment of anxiety-related problems. I think that explanation one um, is not a bad explanation. It's just written in a genre that is incompatible with most readers' needs, that very few of us have the ability to conceptualize another human being in terms of continuous variables. That we don't think about each other, we don't talk to each other in terms of continuous variables. And uh, thinking this way requires basically graduate school. Um, and once you acquire this habit of thinking people in this, thinking about people in this way, uh, you forget how strange it is. And that you have to relearn how to take that continuous variable view and uh, retranslate it back to the language of ordinary folk. Um, I think that explanation one uh, had some problems because it had some jargon in it. I could have taken all the jargon from explanation one and inserted it into explanation two, and explanation two would still be better. Um, I could take all the description of the test too and you know put it in explanation two. Explanation two, I think, would still be better. It's better mostly because the story is not about the assessment, but the story is about Judy. How did this problem start? How was it maintained? And then we have a, a glimpse into how it could be um, remediated. Um, I understand that writing this way uh, takes quite a bit of work, um, and this is why I put in the plug for you know, reserving this, this kind of uh, activity for the really hard cases when, when um, other uh, attempts have, have not worked and that people are starting to get frustrated. We were commenting in, um, in the chat that as you read the, uh, you read explanation two, I was imagining myself as the parent of this child you were describing and it is such a much more empathetic and helpful and it just, it, it just made me feel more hopeful for the same exact, you know, um, child uh, in the second explanation, and I, I, I wish that there was a way that wasn't as time-consuming. And and I also wonder about you. You were saying about describing, you know, what the test measures or what it consists of, and and maybe some of that is important because the test seems so mysterious, you know, mm -hmm. to parents. So I wonder if there's a way to do a little of both, maybe and not have it be so time-consuming? <laughs> so is, is the question, um, how do I um, talk about tests? Well, the yeah. question is, is that necessary? I, I feel like I was taught that it yeah. is necessary, that we have to explain these tests and what they measure and and their, you know, why they're valid a, a little yeah. bit. 
and um, so do you agree that that's necessary in the report? Yeah, I in I understand that there are situations in which you would do that. Um, my my personal feeling is that um, that stuff can all be tucked away in a technical appendix where it can do no harm. Mm. Um, that if you feel that you have to explain your tests, put it put it in in a place where the average reader knows that that's it's a technical appendix. It wasn't written for them, and it won't. What what I'm trying to do is not to alienate the reader. Uh, who doesn't have the kind of training that we have, who is very unlikely to understand the tests, even when we explain them. Some people can, and you know, veteran teachers, of course, know a lot and, and whatnot, but for the average parent, even you know, well-educated, sophisticated in other areas, uh, parents, they, um, I think we forget sometimes just how strange our tests are. <laughs> I mean, I was just yeah listening to that, and we were also there was a sidebar conversation about how <laughs> your, your voice is very soothing, and we're like, oh, oh you should <laughs> audio and things like that. But um, you know, I mean, the writing is just beautiful, and I'm thinking like, how am I like I'm gonna need some work to do this, but it is so much more um, consumable and engaging, and it, yeah, it does read like you said, like a story. Like I feel like I you know I'm opening up a novel and an interesting novel too, something that I'm you know if this was about my kid, I would I would be like totally glued to, you know, and yeah, I, we mostly write these reports that, that are jargon filled and are, uh, it's, it would be hard, I think, to shift out of that when, when you're like me and, and lack some writing skill. Um, but I think that that's a worthwhile endeavor. Like, I think that's really cool. I just enjoyed listening to that. <laughs> Thank you. I, I, I'd like to say that I, I came to this possession, this position sort of all on my own, but other people have been saying very similar things uh, as, as I've said. But the thing that really drove it home was when I started supervising graduate students and um, they were imitating the style that I was writing in. And I saw just how tone deaf it all was. And I didn't realize how bad my own writing was. And, and I was like, oh gosh, this is horrible to read. I'm bored and I'm confused, and I can't keep all these details straight in my head, what chance does anyone else have? And I started taking a, a long, hard look about, you know, like what, what can I do to, to make this more uh, consumer friendly? And I'd, I'd love to be able to say that, you know, a, a week's reflection fixed all the problems. It didn't, it, it just, every, every, every report, I, I identify new things like, why am I doing this? Like, that's a weird way of saying it. And I just, I look back at old habits and they just, they're all over the place and they're invisible to me right now. Um, I, I often say to my, uh, the students that, that I, that I work with, um, I, I want to curse you for the rest of your career with being a little embarrassed with reports you wrote five years ago. Uh, the, if you are, it means that you've grown since then and that you're continually growing. Uh, and so um, I, uh, I'm, I'm continually embarrassed by my old reports and I hope that I always am. <laughs> That's great. We, um, we had a viewer question who, and she asks, I was under the impression that to be legally reliable, we have to describe the scores. I've never thought of explanation to type of narrative style for a report. Sure, you, uh, 
if you feel that it is your legal obligation, um, then you should do what you think is best. There are some alternatives to what I just did. And one of them is to uh, put that in a, a summary and then you know put the, put the rest in a technical appendix, describe away all you need to, but make it clear that that is a, a technical component and that the average reader is not um, required to, to follow every twist and turn of that explanation. Yeah, I like that idea a lot. I think I've seen that one time where the, um, the subtests were described really um, uh, clearly at the end. Mm -hmm. so I think that that would make it better for the parent, especially who I think is one of the most important people in this. Sure. I, I've seen um, innovations in which they split the report down the middle. And so one column is the technical side and the other column is the um, uh, reader friendly side. Another uh, alternative is to use uh, footnotes or side notes so that you can have a narrative um, approach but document the scores as you go. Uh, that, like, where where did I get this? And then you can put it in a in in, in footnotes and side notes, and that, that, so you you meet that obligation to explain whatever it is you think you need to explain. Um, I tend not to do that, and you know, so far, knock on wood, all is okay. And other people have told me that, that, that they don't always explain all the the test results that they are giving a a final evaluation in the end. And um, this is, I, I, I doubt very much that anyone who's seeking an evaluation says, you know, what I'm really looking for is a bunch of continuous variables to help me understand this. Um, yeah. We have uh, Dr. Kevin McGrew in our chat and he comments that most of us were trained to make sure other psychologists understand our interpretation. Mm -hmm. And I think that's true. We kind of write reports for each other sometimes. Yeah. So um, this is a, this is an example where uh, psychologists are not failing to uh, meet the reads of the reader. They're succeeding at something else, which is, you know, writing for the next professional or something like that. And that often interferes with the goal of clarity for, you know, parents and teachers. Um, I, um, how much time do we have? I can't see my clock. Uh, we are at eight forty-seven, so we're uh, running through time. Yeah, yeah. I need yeah, yeah. to wrap you into a second, a uh, second one if you're ready, if you're willing. Well, <laughs> um, sure. So uh, I'll I'll put in my plug for making your reports uh, beautiful. Um, that I see a lot of reports that look like this, and this is the typographical equivalent of of this. That uh, it might be time for a makeover. Although this look was rad, '80s guy. Um, uh, and uh, I'll put in my plug for uh, making your reports beautiful by uh, reading this book. It's free and it's online, Practical Topography. And um, I'll just say that um, people are not in a position to, to judge you know, the technical merits of what we do, but they are in a position to be put off by sloppiness. And so that when you create a professionally polished report that they... Um, it's a signal that you didn't cut corners in other aspects of the report uh, of, of the assessment process either. And so um, I, I always work hard to, to make sure that my reports look nice. So instead of this, you, you get something like this where uh, people feel like they're in good hands. Um, 
So uh, are, are, there, are there other questions or I could keep going? I think you can keep going. There's just All some- right. let's, let's just move along here. Um, good paper, nice pen. I always put my reports in a, in a sleeve uh, so that um, uh, it's, it's, it's gonna be available to the next um, professional that this is, this is a way of, of signaling that this document matters and it means something. And uh, it shouldn't just be shoved in a drawer to keep company with you know, uh, you know, expired coupons and things like that. Um, when um, when Alan and Nadine Kaufman asked if I would um, join the writing team to uh, uh, revisit the Essentials of Assessment Report Writing Book, the second edition, uh, our first plan of attack was to just, you know, update some of the tests and and uh, and our, our big innovation was to ask uh, seasoned professionals that we admired to con contribute their assessment reports that were annotated with their decision-making process. But along the way, we started asking ourselves some fundamental questions. And uh, I, I like these kinds of questions. We were... Uh, I, I like the title of, of the, assess the Essentials series that it's you get down to the essence of what things are. And so I started asking myself questions like, wait a minute, why do reports even exist at all? Why, 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 couldn't, why don't we just have engaging conversations? We've got the technology, we could um, have, have it transcribed and just you know, have a transcribed report and that's, we could be done with it. Um, I wasn't questioning the value of assessment, but like why, why the report? And um, I was reminded of this quote by Susan Sontag, uh, what I write is smarter than I am because I can rewrite it. Or as writing expert Peter Elbow said, think of writing not as a way to transmit a message, but as a way to grow and cook a message. Writing is a way to end up thinking something you couldn't have started out thinking. And I, I started thinking about, yeah, that, that this, the writing is a way to clarify you're thinking in ways that you probably couldn't do just on the fly in a conversation. And so if you can use the assessment report writing process as a way to write something that is literally smarter than you are, uh, you are making good use of, of, of your time and everyone else's. Um, a lot of people think that uh, bad writing is like, you know, not understanding grammar and stuff like that. These are my this is my horror show of, of grammar errors. Uh, this is not actually what stands in our way. Um, even if you have lots of grammatical errors, you're usually perfectly well understood. The problem usually is that we do a kind of data dump onto the page and we're, we're, we're telling the story of what happened to us rather than uh, thinking about what does the reader need. Um, I'll, I'll skip along here. One of the books that helped me write better it completely transformed the way that I thought about writing was this wonderful book called Clear and Simple as the Truth. And the idea is that you use ordinary language to address an intelligent and competent non-specialist reader as if we're having a conversation directing the reader's gaze to that which was previously unknown by the reader but can now be seen by both. And the metaphor is that prose is a window to the world and you're standing shoulder to shoulder with your reader. And the reader doesn't know all the things that you know, but once you direct their gaze out into the window, into the world, that they can see something just as well as you can now. 
and that you're equally in possession of the truth and that there's a leveling between uh, the expert and the, 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 the person who's, who's reading. And I love this metaphor of standing shoulder to shoulder, looking out into the world together, that just, we're just, I'm showing you what I'm seeing. And, and uh, when I hold to this metaphor, I write much, much better reports, but I'm not thinking about like, how do I document this thing instead of how can I communicate to someone who's standing shoulder to shoulder, who can't give me feedback right now because I'm writing, but someone who, who can be led through my interpretation in a way that, um, that communicates something useful and true. Um, I, uh, in this book, they talk about uh, some some classic writers who who are especially good at this, and I'll, I'll I'll leave it to readers of the book to discover some of these things. But I did want to forward along to there's a kind of level one interpretation, like although Ronaldo was quite shy, he's well-liked by his peers in part because he's a good athlete and is extremely polite. His teachers describe him as very mature for his age. There's nothing wrong with this kind of statement, except that everyone who knows Ronaldo already knows all of this. But instead, if, I'm, uh, if I've been listening attentively and, and observing and carefully trying to figure out what, what do other people not already know, then I can give people a view of Ronaldo that they wouldn't otherwise see. Something like, compared to other adolescents, Ronaldo was unusually well-mannered and formal with both teachers and his peers. For example, he makes it a point to formally introduce himself to teachers and other adults with a firm handshake, addressing them with respectful titles. Pleased to meet you, Mr. Hampton, sir. His sometimes over-the-top, old-fashioned courtesy is seen by his peers as quirky but harmless, and in some ways endearing. His peers can count on Ronaldo for an earnestly warm, good morning to you, and how are you this fine day? Ronaldo is indeed warm-hearted, but also much shyer than he first appears. at first appears. In the classroom and on the sports field, he can relax because his role is clear at all times. When faced with an unstructured social situation interaction, he is easily overwhelmed by the fast-paced banter of his peers. He worries constantly about saying the wrong thing and becoming the object of ridicule. He's found that being formal and polite is a kind of safe script to follow whenever he would otherwise feel awkward. Unfortunately, what saves him from feeling anxious and vulnerable prevents him from developing closer relationships. Because Ronaldo treats everyone in almost exactly the same friendly but relentlessly formal manner, his friendliness does not win him close friends. And for a long time, having friendly acquaintances was enough for Ronaldo. In the last year, he has felt increasingly lonely. And here, I'm trying to offer something that uh, a teacher or parent might not see about Ronaldo. That just because Ronaldo isn't causing trouble doesn't mean that he doesn't need help. That Ronaldo is inc becoming increasingly depressed and anxious and falling behind in school but because he's friendly and he's warm and he's polite, uh, he might not uh, get attention. And in, in this report, I'm trying to, to get others to take an interest in Ronaldo. All right. Wow. That's really beautiful. I, I had a thought though, is this, is this part of your report that you would 
kind of check out with the student. Absolutely, I, I, yes, right, yeah. So I, I should have clarified that this is this is like this is already vetted with with Ronaldo with his parents. That as we're going, I I, I would never uh, write something that is is uh, this intimate without his consent. It's great. Um, I, of course, have many other things that I could say, but I'll, uh, I, I think we're out of time. Is that right? We're just about. Just yeah. about, yeah. Okay. Awesome. Reflecting on something you said, uh, Dr. Schneider, um, there's a, a literacy professor named uh, Rudine Sims Bishop, Dr. Mm. Rudine Sims Bishop, and she talks about literacy as being a window, a mirror, and a sliding door. And uh, it just you know, the, the, that each piece that the mirror can reflect my culture, the window allows me to reflect on other people's cultures and the sliding door allows me to walk in someone else's shoes. And she speaks uh, more to literature in the classroom and stuff. Yeah. But reminds me of that having. I, that's, that's beautiful. Yeah. Um, I, I've often like when I recruit, uh, students to to be in um, in, in counseling. Um, I often think that uh, training in in uh, literature and in theater is often better training for for the helping professions than psychology major is. That you're spending a lot of time inhabiting the mind of others, um, mm. both heroes and villains, and in between. You know. Yeah. That's super cool. I mean, I'm just, yeah, I'm in, I'm in awe. And then I kind of feel like um, if you were to write a fiction book too, I would love to like buy that and read it. Like, just, Thank you. like I'm like, with Ronaldo right now. And I'm like, what? Yeah, I, I, I'm, I, Ronaldo is fiction. I mean, there, there is a, a, a Ronaldo deep several layers back, but um, yeah, there, this is a, a I, I, I want the best for Ronaldo too. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so yeah, last call for any comments, if anybody has anything to say, but I've just been seeing, yeah, lots of um, people kind of mulling this over and um, thinking about, um, we've had some comments. Um, let's see, I wanna see if I can pick a couple maybe to highlight, but um, oh, Courtney said something about, she needs to go back and edit all. <laughs> 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 if, if you can get like improve one sentence or one paragraph just a little bit that our time is well spent mm -hmm. <laughs> um, yeah because i'm all my reports i mean they look like explanation one for sure for um for what i'm putting out and now i'm like wow yeah <laughs> i can do better <laughs> so explanation two is something that i aspire to but the pull of of uh explanation one is very strong and i i haven't weeded out all elements of it from my current approach yeah yeah, and I think that it goes back to too what you were saying about assessment is kind of you know you do it when it's necessary when when all else has failed and so it's not the type of thing yeah you can't write you know a hundred evaluations in that manner a year like you would just not be able to physically do it so you have to kind of reserve it for you know you test when you need to test and if you don't need to test then go test <laughs> right and i think you can acquire the reputation of the kind of report writer that when you spend the time to write a little extra that it's a signal that everyone needs to to perk up and notice because you have earned that trust by um you know being uh, economical with your pros elsewhere mm -hmm. and that that um 
that w when you take the time to, to, to really engage with this, this, this one kid that has had quite a difficult time, that it's time to listen. Mm -hmm. All right, I'm not seeing any other, um, Courtney says she's an overachiever, so this, <laughs> I was just looking at that. I don't see um, any other questions. So thank you so much for taking the time and we'd like to, I think, try and rope you into a part two at some point so we can get through. I would, I would love that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, the, yeah the, 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 the conversation can continue. Uh, obviously, I've got a lot of slides. I always come with too much, but I'll show you. Um, that um, for 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 greater detail, um, that um, this book was published last year, and uh, that uh, Liz Lichtenberger, Nancy Mather, Nadine Kaufman, uh, and I worked really hard on it and tried to make every sentence worth reading. Mm -hmm. And um, uh, uh, we were joined by uh, a number of other professionals who volunteered their time and produced gorgeously beautiful reports. And uh, John Willis contributed a whole extra chapter, which was an incredible gift. Wow, yeah, he's great. Yeah, yeah. Very cool. Okay, thank you so much. We're gonna wrap up. I wanna remind everybody that it looks like we'll be back on 11.3 and we'll have um, Dr. Lisa Kelly Vance on to talk about early childhood. Um, so we look forward to seeing everybody then. Good night, everybody. Thank you, everyone.